This is Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion and social justice and religion and public life. I'm John Shuck, and my guest is Thomas Hill, who is my brother-in-law, and he is also a clinical assistant professor at New York University's Center for Global Affairs. And he's here with us, and uh, we're going to be talking about some of his work at NYU and, uh, and some of your work at, uh, in Iraq in terms of peace building as opposed to peace making. Right. Tell, tell us, what's, what's the difference between those two? Well, um, first of all, uh, I'm really happy to be here, John. Thanks Welcome. for inviting me to the show. Um, the, 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 the real difference between peacemaking and peacebuilding and, and even peacekeeping that people talk about is that peacebuilding is more of a, um, you know, I think of it as an umbrella concept. It's a very broad concept where we work to um, build all the structures that are necessary to have a peaceful society. Everything from um, an economic system that serves people's needs um, in a way that doesn't create uh, vast amounts of inequality, um, having proper education systems, and then embedded with that is having some sort of systems, whether they're formal or informal, for addressing conflict in nonviolent ways. And that's peace building as opposed to peacemaking, which is... Mostly based it's an, on a conflict. Now. Yeah, it's an it's a narrow. That's really a narrow political act. It's you know when the United Nations intervenes or when um, you know high level mediators involve get involved between states to bring you know violent conflicts to an end. A core concept of all of this is the idea that um, there's nothing wrong with conflict. Right? We all live with conflict in our lives. It's mm -hmm. a natural thing. Um, the problem is when conflict turns violent or people use violence to address conflict. And what um, what we try to do in peace building is to help people build the skills and build their, you know, their natural capacities for dealing with conflict in nonviolent and constructive ways. Then there's a third word, what we might think of the military doing peacekeeping. Right, which is always a funny thing that I find, you know, especially when I talk to students, they, they tell me that, uh, you know, they want to study something and tell me how uh, a military force is going to bring peace to, to a particular place. And I have a lot of respect for people who serve in the military and the, and the, the need at times for militaries to protect um, populations and, and states. Um, but it's, it's an interesting thing because I'm a big believer in, in process. And so if you're going to come in with, uh, big artillery and guns to try to enforce peace, um, it sends in a bit of a mixed message to people. Um, you know, of course this is something we do now and there are times when armies are using violence against each other that to come in with a, a, a peacekeeping force um, might be necessary for a short amount of time just to make people feel secure. Um, but long term, it tends not to be a really good solution. Well, it's the notion of compelling. I mean, you can compel someone within it. And it's a good tool to have that you have to have, but it's not a permanent tool because you have to keep the energy required to compel people going all the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you, what you really want are stakeholders who, who have been involved in um, violent conflict to recognize that there's a more constructive path for them to follow that doesn't involve violence. And it's much less costly in terms of, um, obviously, lives, um, but also in terms of, uh, you know, economic uh, factors. I mean, it costs much more to run a war than it does to teach people how to uh, resolve their conflicts, you know, even on a broad social level, uh, in ways that are nonviolent and that are constructive. And that is what you teach at NYU. Tell us about the program and what you're doing there. Sure. Um, 
Well, we teach, uh, we have a, a master's program in global affairs at the Center for Global Affairs. And um, we have several different master's concentrations, one of which is peace building. Now, there are a lot of programs around the United States and Europe and other places that teach conflict resolution, um, conflict management, uh, sometimes it's called. But what I actually like to do is look at this from a constructive standpoint and say, you know, what is it that we need to do at a political level, a social level, an economic level? Um, that in order to build peace. So, mm -hmm. of course, we need to understand conflict and we need to understand approaches to it and uh, different ways that different societies look at it. But we really want to be thinking more about these, you know, these broad structural issues. And that's what I'm trying to encourage students to do there in the program to, you know, when they get out into the world, whether they're working in, in you know, policymaking at the government level or whether they're working at NGOs or whether, they're, you know, some of them will even go on to work at the United Nations, to think about, you know, always keeping a constructive uh, spotlight on this and think about what can I do in order to build peace. Now, we're located, uh, you know, our program is about six blocks, as you know, from, from Wall Street in downtown mm -hmm. Manhattan. Um, and so we actually have people in our program who are um, career changers, who are, um, some of them have been working for investment banks and other financial firms. And some of those people have said to me, you know, well, why would I be interested in peace building? And the truth of the matter is that uh, people who work in financial institutions, who work as uh, traders, who do any of that kind of work, you can bring a peace building lens to that as long as you're committed to doing your work in a way that actually uh, leaves the world a little bit more peaceful than you found it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm speaking with Tom Hill, who is clinical assistant professor at New York University's Center for Global Affairs, uh, teaching uh, peace building uh, with students. And you teach uh, a full load of teaching, several classes. Yeah, yeah, what, three, what are some of your three classes. Three courses. Like? So, I, so I teach a, a, a core class in the program um, that's just called Peacemaking and Peacebuilding that sort of explores both some of these, um, you know, basic theories, but also looks at a lot of cases, you know, um, everything from United Nations peace operations to uh, very localized cases of NGOs and, um, you know, and community-based organizations that get involved in peace building and try and look at the application of these. I teach some other courses, one on conflict assessment, really analyzing conflict and thinking about um, developing programming and policies uh, to address conflict uh, only after you really understand its component parts. Uh, I teach a, a, a what I think is a really interesting course in the spring that's called the Workshop in Applied Peacebuilding, where students partner up with organizations that are doing peacebuilding work um, and develop projects with them and then go into the field uh, to do some of that work. Last summer, I had students go to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to uh, Sri Lanka, to uh, Liberia, and to Brazil. And you yourself have been to Iraq and some other countries, too, or... Well, I've, I've traveled a lot, but most of my peace building work professionally has occurred in Iraq, yes. Tell us a little bit about that. When did you start going and how many times have you been there? So I, I went for the first time, um, not until 2003, because that was the, uh, as a holder of an American passport, it wasn't really possible to enter Iraq very easily prior to that. Okay. Um, I started doing work with Iraqi partners in 2000 when I was a master's student myself at Columbia University. And uh, we had a project where we were working with some of the um, political actors and also academics in the aftermath of the uh, Kurdish civil war, the inter-Kurdish civil war that happened in the north of Iraq in the 1990s. 
um, and I became involved with it at that time and, and really just stayed with it after I finished my master's program because some of the Iraqis who I had met were very interested in developing this field of conflict resolution or peace building um, and thinking about how to apply it in their context. And who did you go to work with specifically? What, what we mostly worked with were university partners because those were the um, those were sort of the institutions that uh, made most sense to work with from a university base here in the U.S. So we developed some early partnerships with three of the universities in the northern part of Iraq, the the Kurdistan region, um, at the University of Duhuk, uh, Salahuddin University, which is located in Erbil, and uh, Suleimani University in the city of Suleimani. And do you keep uh, working with those universities now? Yeah, I've, I've continued working with those universities now. Of course, that was before the um, American-led uh, you know, action in Iraq in 2003. After that, uh, you know, after the invasion in 2003, then um, I did start working with some university partners and from other universities. So now I've actually worked with people from about 10 other universities around the country. Most of my work, though, recently has been with the University of Duhuk, one of the earliest partners, because they have recently developed what is the only um, degree-granting program in peace and conflict studies in all of Iraq. It's uh, it's a master's master of arts program, and that's because of, of your engagement there that this program has begun. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the the professors and the university administrators there were the ones to really start it, but we've you know we've worked in partnership all along, and I think we've contributed something to to what they're doing. Um, I, they've asked me to come on two occasions and co-teach classes with their master's students. Um, they've got a relatively small group of graduate students, and I've actually kept in touch with them pretty regularly. And I, I often you know, exchange emails and suggest um, you know, sources and things like that that they can use in their research. And so it's been a nice relationship. I'm speaking with Tom Hill, who is the clinical assistant professor at NYU, and he has been taking a number of trips. Uh, every year you go oh. at least to Iraq for the past uh, decade or almost. Well, I've actually been there now. I I've stopped counting officially, but I I'm, I'm, think I'm coming up on about my 25th trip. 25th trip. Yeah, I've been, going, I've been going with some regularity, probably an average of about three times a year since 2003. Um, you know, some years it's only been once, and other years it's been five times. Um, really dependent on sort of where the work is and the projects are, and to some degree where the funding is to to get over and do that because it's this is not easy work to fund. The funding, yeah, and this isn't funded by the State Department. Not directly, no. We've you know the the work that I'm doing right now, the specific project with the University of Duhuk, is funded by the British Council, um, which has actually had uh, has worked in Iraq for a very long time, from you know back to the Brit time of the British Mandate. Um, you know, really their work used to be involved in helping Iraqis learn English so that they could then go to universities in the UK. Um, but they, they were interested in funding this particular project. In the past, we've worked with some of the big NGOs who have been funded by USAID. So our work hasn't been directly funded by them, but, um, but indirectly so. So what, you've been working there with the Iraqi people. Do, do you Speak Arabic, or do you need well, a translators? Little, no, a little. Well, a little of each. I, I started studying it in my doctoral program, and I'm, you know, I'm, I've got what I what I tell people now is sort of taxi cab and restaurant Arabic. So I can I can converse a little bit to get around, but uh, it's, it's going to be a lifelong project of mine to really learn the language. What what have you learned by working with the people in Iraq? I mean, obviously, the United States has had military action and invasion there. Right. How has that played into what you're working with with peace building? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. On one hand, I like to say because of my own, um, 
I think, political views and my own ethical, you know, thoughts about the situation. I, I distanced myself from the from the U.S. military invasion so much so that I discovered early on that I, you know, for my own safety as well as the safety of my partners there, I wanted to make sure that I was not misunderstood as being a military, a member of the U.S. military there. So I started wearing a beard. Um, really? Yeah, well, that was part of the I'll reason. The show, <laughs> you okay. Man, that, that was, you know, that, that was, so I, I've taken some steps to really distance myself from that. At the same time, it's impossible to completely distance yourself from it. You know, I am an American. I do carry an American passport. Um, it's my government that's responsible for these actions. You know, my government, whether I like its actions or not, does speak on behalf of the American people and act on behalf of them. So, um, so it's a, it's a very odd, um, uh, tightrope to walk sometimes there. And, you know, what I've learned though is, uh, you know, we know it's a complicated issue. Um, and it's a complicated issue for the Iraqi people too, in a lot of, a lot of different ways. Some of them who very much opposed, uh, the U S military coming into the country, um, at the start, or let's say shortly after the start, when they realized that things were not going to go as smoothly as uh, many people were promised, um, you know, now with the U.S. military leaving, feel quite afraid um, and are concerned about what comes next. So um, I think everybody's had to become a little bit more humble in this situation and realize that uh, it's not as, you know, th this is not a clear-cut case. And it doesn't help to be very to to be very absolute or very black and white about these issues. As you um, converse with the people of Iraq, what, what do you find in general? Are they uh, are they pleased now that the that the U.S. military has left, or is, you know, it's, it's, you it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag, exactly. I mean. You know, we have to remember that Iraq's a, a, a fairly large country with, you know, 27 or 28 million people. Um, and you can find as many different opinions about the situation there as you will here. Um, you know, of course, it impacts people a little bit more in their day-to-day -day lives there, of course, than it does here. But there are some people who, um, you know... Uh, more in the predominantly Kurdish north who I think would like to see the U.S. military stay longer. They feel that they've played a, a more constructive role than people do in other parts of the country. Um, and But there are many, many people who are really happy to see the, you know, the occupation end and you know, to see what will come next. Now, the difficulty, of course, is the institutions in Iraq um, the government institutions are not nearly ready to deal with so many of the challenges that they have there. You know, some of the basic ones that we hear about all the time, providing electricity to the people, um, you know, basic governance issues, some of the things I was mentioning before, ensuring that the judicial system, for example, can really handle um, cases and build confidence among the population that when there's a dispute at the community level that someone, as they would here in the United States, um, can take it to the court, you know, get a lawyer and go before a judge and feel that justice is going to be served in some way. That's not often the case in Iraq. People don't feel that way about their judicial system. Um, I, I did a, a really, what for me was a really interesting interview this summer when I was uh, in the city of Duhuk with a uh, member of what they call a social affairs office of one of the political parties and that engages in its own uh, community level peacemaking. And what they do is they, you know, when they hear that there's been a violent outbreak between communities or that there's been a, a, a killing or a revenge killing, they send representatives out into the community and try and find ways to ameliorate the situation. Um, 
And, uh, you know, the, this gentleman who was in the head of this office, he said to me, you know, the political leaders are actually trying to um, take away some of their financial support for their activities. They're saying that, no, we need to move in the direction of democracy and have, uh, you know, a, a formal judicial system. And he said to me, this is a problem because the people now still think, uh, you know, in an in, in, in older way. And they have much more confidence in their in their families and their tribes and their tribal affiliations than they do in these new democratic institutions. So, for example, he said to me, if a a, a judge orders a police officer to go and arrest uh, an accused perpetrator of a a murder, perhaps, um, he said, if that perpetrator belongs to the same tribe as the police officer. He said, I can guarantee you 100% that the police officer will come back to the court and say, I couldn't find the guy. Mm. He said, yet in our system, if we handle this tribally, um, we can have tribal leaders who people have great confidence in try to handle the situation and you know, uh, make sure that the possible violence that comes out of this is either uh, minimized or hopefully ended altogether. And so it's a very comp complicated time for the people of Iraq, I think, right now, dealing on one hand with the you know, the very good idea and image of a fair and democratic system and all the institutions that go with it, and at the same time understanding that there's not a lot of confidence among the people in those types of structures. And there's also a sense from um, a Western point of view, the American point of view, that uh, come in and solve their problem and teach them how to do things the American way, yeah. and that isn't necessarily working or it isn't necessarily good. It's not even no. knowing what's going on. Well, I mean, you know, we have a lot of challenges here, of course, as we all mm -hmm. know. And our our structures and institutions don't always work as well as they ought to. There's a lot of injustice here, um, certainly between different parts of our population. So it's a little disingenuous to go around the world and suggest that we have a, a flawless system that other people should copy. Um, what makes more sense, I think, is to get into conversation and dialogue with other people and see, you know, are there things that, that sure, that they can learn from our experiences just as, you know, and this is the part that I think is often missed here in the United States. What can we learn from the experience of Iraqis who have, you know, a 5,000 year history as they understand it? Sure. Um, and, you know, the, even in their tribal systems and in their, their, their structures, their community structures, their social systems, there's a lot that we can learn from them. Well, what are some of the things that you've learned as you've been there now 25 times? I'm, again, I'm speaking with Tom Hill, uh, who has been to Iraq, working with the university systems there. Um, as part of uh, peace building work with, with NYU. Uh, uh, Tom teaches at the Center for Global Affairs at NYU. And so you've been to Iraq 25 times. What, what have you learned from the Iraqi people in regards to peace building? You know, the thing that I often talk about in peace building is the need for building relationships. And those relationships can exist, you know, interpersonally between two people, between two communities, or obviously at the at the state level, um, you know, between two countries. And Iraqis um, are very, very good at building relationships. You know, at first when I started traveling there, I was uh, I was amazed at uh, the hospitality that I was shown how I was invited to, um, to friends' homes for, you know, for really elaborate dinners and, um, you know, just shown all of the wonderful foods and, the, and the, the way that people interact with one another and really get to know each other. 
in a way that I, I think has largely been lost to us here, in, not only in the United States, but perhaps throughout the West. Um, and so they know how to build relationships. And we could really learn something from the idea of showing hospitality and actually putting, you know, making yourself a little bit vulnerable. Uh, you know, it, it, this is obviously a micro example, but when, you know, when people invite you into their home, and they don't know you that well, especially, you know, think about this. It's at a time of war for the Iraqi people. Um, Americans have actually invaded their country. And yet I have Iraqi people inviting me, a citizen of the country that's brought war to their country, into their homes, feeding me, you know, some of whom are not very well off. I mean, economically, I'm in a much, much stronger position than these people are. Any of us are here in the United States. And yet they wanted to share the very little bit that they had with me. And it was their way of saying, you know, that they wanted to be friends. They wanted to, they wanted to show the American people that the Iraqi people could be their friends and wanted to be their friends. And they were not this frightening, um, you know, group of violent people who were who were, you know, trying to do something awful, and were only trying to, um, you know, create some sort of chaos in the world. And that's something that I think we should really stop and think about at both the interpersonal level and at the political level, interstate. How do we as Americans or we as Westerners build relationships? I just don't think we do it very well anymore. And that's part of peace building versus, say, peacekeeping. Right. Once, yeah. Once, it's really, and you think of, of war or military efforts as, as the failure to do all of the things of, of the building of relationships that should have started before. Sure. If, and if, go, and yeah. ongoing. If you're going to use force to keep peace, you know, the message you're going to send to the population is that they need to also use force in order to keep peace at every level. You know, we have a lot of mythologies um, within uh, Americans do uh, regarding the people of Iraq. Uh, mm -hmm. One is that, well, they're Muslim extremists, and that's what is causing all this violence mm -hmm. and all of that type of thing. It's religious stuff. Or they have always been violent forever, and that's the way they do things. Right. And that's the language they speak. Right. Maybe we ought to denounce some myths. <laughs> <laughs> is, I mean, is that true? I, I mean, no. You know, and, and in, you know, in fairness, uh, the idea that um, you know, the people that I've worked with in Iraq and that I've gotten to know very well, you know, are they representative of the entire population? Probably not. These are people who felt safe working with an international, you know, professor and um, someone that is clearly, you know, I'm probably working with a more progressive sector of the population. Uh, that's, that I think is undeniable. That said, um, hearing the stories that those people tell, um, not only what I've seen with my own eyes, tells me that, you know, Sure, there's an extreme, you know, wing of uh, the Iraqi population, some of which has extreme religious views and some of which uses violence to achieve its ends. But so do we here in the United States. We have, we have, you know, extremism as well in religion and in politics. And I would venture to say that most societies have those extremes. Um, what I've seen with Iraqis are, and seen and heard uh, are many, many stories of a very moderate, integrated population. Um, people who are both Sunni and Shia, who have intermarried, who have run businesses together. One of the interesting things, in fact, that I've heard, you know, um, 
many uh, of the listeners of this program may or may not be aware, but there was a significant Jewish population in Iraq for a long time until the early 1950s. Um, many of those families, when they left to either go to Europe or go to Israel, they left behind homes, they left behind um, some of their personal wealth, and they entrusted it to friends who were Muslim and said, someday we'll return for these things. I heard many, many stories of people who've said, when are the Jews coming back to Iraq? We're still holding their things for them. Hmm. Um, and I have to explain to them that the, you know, the, the view of Americans um, and Jewish Americans that I know um, is that Iraq is not a safe or welcoming place for them. So there's really a, a disconnect here between what I've seen and what I understand as a, as a very welcoming country and a welcoming people who would like to have you know, even their own Jewish Iraqis come back home. Um, and the understanding in, in the United States and possibly Israel and Europe uh, that says, no, this is not a welcoming place to, to Westerners or to Jews. And I had, I've had on this program, this is Religion for Life, um, Mazen al-Saka, who is a refugee uh, from Iraq, a Christian mm -hmm. uh, Iraqi. Sure. And, he, and he talked about how really it was since 2003 um, so with the kind of the social disarray that these fault lines between communities developed that prior to that and yeah. they've been uh, actually living peacefully well for thousands of years sure i mean there there were there have always been religious divisions i mean it's not as if people did not know what religion or what sect the different families belonged to they were certainly aware of it but I've just heard so many stories. I think uh, Mazen, who you've mentioned to me, uh, is from the city of Mosul, which is was one of the most integrated cities in Iraq. Um, had a big, big Christian population there, uh, you know, going back for thousands of years or uh, 2,000 years just about. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, Muslim friends of mine have said to me, look, when I was a little girl, I have one friend who said, you know, when I was a little girl, I used to go with my neighbor to light candles in the in the Chaldean church. And and I used to love to do that. It was a beautiful thing. And, you know, they would go to their, their families, their neighbors' homes for Christmas dinner, and they would invite their Christian friends over to celebrate Eid with them. Um, and it really was a rich, um, you know, place that I think embodied a lot of the principles of multiculturalism. Um, the What's happened in these last eight years, unfortunately, and, you know, not only to blame the U.S. action here, but, you know, Saddam Hussein did a very good job mm -hmm. of dividing the population before this. Um, so going back for those eight years and then for the 30 before it under the, under the Ba'ath Party regime, um, there were a lot of, there's been a lot of political manipulation of religious, um, you know, I think imagery and uh, religious identities uh, that has, you know, fostered a lot of the violence. But at its core, it's not about Iraqi people not accepting each other for their religious differences or their, um, you know, or the differences in sect uh, or even their ethnic differences. There's, there's, there I think are high levels of uh, trust and respect between the different groups. Unfortunately, people have been frightened by political leaders to believe that um, people from some of those other groups are out to get them. So we're just about out of time, uh, but I do want to ask you, what do you think, with your experience working there, what do Americans need to know? And is there any positive role 
for Americans uh, in this country? Well, what I would like to think now is that we've reached a stage with the, you know, at least the uh, di diminishment of American military presence there, um, that it's a time for citizen-to-citizen -citizen engagement. The best thing now is for Americans to get to be able to talk to people in these other countries and not only get the message about other people from our uh, mainstream media and from our political leaders. Tom Hill, uh, assistant professor at New York University's Center for Global Affairs with me on Religion for Life today. Thank um, you very much, John. It's my pleasure. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Shuck, pastor at First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. You can get podcasts from this program at the congregation's website, www.fpcelizabethton.org. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS-FM and HD, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC, Emory, Virginia. Find out more information about upcoming programs at our blog, religionforlife.me. Until next time, be well.